But Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're a few verses in and we're a little bit better than halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. Written by Solomon. Calls himself the preacher in this text. We think it was when he was uh, older in life, you know, nearing the end of his life. We'll find out some of those key texts that tell us that later in the book of Ecclesiastes. He gives us some clues. and um, He's telling us what he's observed. He's lived a life that really hardly anybody else could ever live. You know, he's had the money, he's had the time, he's had the power to be able to do whatever he wished. And so he's been under an experiment. Um, and so now we're getting some of the benefits. He's telling us in this practical section about what he's gone through, what, what he's gleaned in his experiments or in his pursuits. And he was looking into satisfaction in this life. He was looking to see if he could find purpose, if he could find completion in this world only, with just this world in mind, without thinking about God, just without thinking about eternity, if man can live a satisfied, purpose-filled, complete life without God or eternity in mind. And our memory verse tells us no. You know, you can't. You know, we need to please God. We need to think about eternity. We need to honor his commandments and, you know, and choose him. But he set the goal to see if it could be found. And just... Uh, in, in this time and in this place without God, and we know the answer is no. Our memory verse tells us. You know, it concludes, it says that no, we need to fear God. We need to keep him in the forefront, and we need to obey him. But he's given us own advice, advice on how to live here and now in the passage that we have before us this morning. That's uh, in chapter 7. I'm 52 for another month, so I want to cling on to that. And I've lived long enough that I have seen a few things that he talks about in the passage this morning. I've experienced some of them, and I've observed some of them, and Enough that as I went through these texts, I'm like, and thought on them, I was like, yeah, you know, I know what he says. I've got enough years under my belt. I can see what he's saying, and I can take it to heart. And so it's things that you know, are relevant to today. And so wisdom is learning from someone else and applying it to your life and saving you the grief of having to go through the hard knocks of life. And that's why we have wisdom books and wisdom literature that God tells us and warns us and tells us to be wise. Learn from what he is telling you. Learn by taking his, you know, his, his mandates and, and, and learning to obey and observe his laws. Save you some grief in life. Have a better life. Have a pleasing life by living for the Lord. He is trying to give us wisdom and, and saving us going through the hard things and learning life the hard way by experience. And so he's trying to tell us that. And he tells us the good things to experience about serving the Lord and pleasing him and pursuing what is good and righteous and and the things that are happy and make you happy. He, he gives us that in the Bible. You know, so the keys to a happy life are here. And some of that's from, from Solomon in these texts. And so save ourselves some grief is, is kind of the, um, the purpose of wisdom. But Ecclesiastes 7, look at verse 7. It says, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Um, hope to get to verse 10 today. But uh, uh, the first half of, half of it, oppression... Uh, Solomon's spoken about before. He's talked about it and how he doesn't like it and he observes it and he sees it and frustrates him. But a little bit different this time. He tells it from a wise man's perspective. A, a smart guy, a calm guy, not a rage monster. You know, somebody's like, ah, ready to, to get mad at a moment's notice. I know guys like that. They're just waiting for an excuse to be mad. They're just like a time bomb just waiting for you to, or a landmine, waiting for you to touch it, and it's going to explode on you, and you're kind of like, man, what was all that about? You know, and it was about nothing, you know, you, there's people out there just on the verge, you know, a, 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 a pot, you know, boiling, just waiting to boil over at, at a moment's notice. Not that guy. He's not talking about that guy. Uh, he's talking about a calmer person. But let's look at, he, he's mentioned it before, look at Proverbs uh, chapter 14, and we'll look at just a couple for 
some color. So Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14, and then verse 17, he says, He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. He says, man, if you've got a quick temper, or if you have a bad and a rash temper to someone that's you know, easily angered in that way, he's like, man, that's, you know, people don't like him. He said, you don't have friends, don't do that. He says, guy like that's hated. He says, you know, plus, this guy deals foolishly. He's not making rash decisions. He's just momentary. He's like, whatever right now. Ah, yeah, you know, please me and do whatever. That's not right. Ah, just angry. He's like, he's warning against that here in the Proverbs saying, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy who's angry. Uh, don't have that quick temper. Don't be bad and rash because people are going to avoid you. Verse 29 in the same chapter says, he that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. He says, here, he goes, he wants you to, the, the wise thing to be is someone who is slow to wrath, someone who takes that step back and takes a breath and says, let me think about this. Let me use my words cautiously. Proverbs are full of that, about being slow to speak and slow to anger, about being tempered in what you were saying, about self-control in that way. And here he says it right now, it says, it, it makes it seem like you have great understanding. Because you do have great understanding. You need to know that I need not to say something quickly. I need to think about my words. This is another person that I'm dealing with here. And this could affect them. And who knows how it could affect them. You know, that's empathy is a lost art that we need to, we need to cultivate. You know, caring about someone else, their feelings, what they are going through. You never know what someone's going through. You never know what their day is like. Maybe you're the one that comes and tips the scales that makes them give up or, you know, you know just another thing that just adds to their insult and they go home and cry themselves to sleep. Who knows, you know? Why not be the life of, or the breath of fresh air and the one who encourages them and helps them with a smile and through a difficult time helps them? Uh, that's greatly appreciated. Uh, my mom had a store when we were growing up and it was a uh, Calico Frog, because, yeah, that's what we named things. Um, but no, it was, uh, Calico was popular in the 70s. It was down in Nashville. And so um, sometimes, you know, she'd have to go to the bathroom, and, and we were down there running around as kids, you know, and she'd be like, Brian, watch the store. And the whole time I was at the counter, I would pray that no one would buy anything uh, because we did not have computers or calculators. We had to figure tax, you know, and I'm like, this is worse than story problems at school. And we had a little chart that we went down. If we ran a credit card, we had a little machine, you know, and did a carbon copy and do all that. And I remember <laughs> please let it be exact change, and please let it be all this. And I can remember one time, you know, trying to uh, figure out tax. And these people were so kind, and they're looking at the chart with me, and we're doing the math problem together. Thank you for my homework. You know, can I have a tip now? No, but, you know, just, oh, that was, it made my day so much better. You know, where they could have exploded on me and been like, you stupid kid, why are you even working here? And all this stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm free labor. Yeah, but, uh, you know, but, no, but they were kind with me. Man, that made a difference and that they helped me. And I understood a little bit better. I couldn't do it today, but I, at that time I knew what I was doing and could understand it. And I was like, oh, I was glad they dealt kind with me. Let's be that person. That's what Solomon said. Let's be the one who helps someone else who's having a bad day. You know, when they can't find the button at McDonald's, you know, like, just be patient. Yeah, it's number two. It looks like this. <laughs> no, no, whatever you got to do to help them. You know, but, but have that patience and not just be, ah, you know, because we don't know what all they're going through. And so he's, he's kind of encouraging that. He says, you don't want to be the one who's angry here. You don't want to be that person. He says, they exalt folly. They're just foolish. And so he warns us about that often. One that always struck me the most as a, as a younger man is in uh, Proverbs 16, in verse 32. And I, I really took this one to heart because I... I worked for a while with somebody who had a quick temper. 
and, and they would do rash things, that would tend to kind of rub off on you. It's like, oh, they're exploding. That kind of looks fun. You know, sometimes, sometimes you're like, it looks fun to, 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 to make a big scene and do something. Man, people give you a wide berth afterwards. And um, one day he was throwing stuff, and he threw a wrench, and it stuck in the wall. And I was like, oh, and I went on my break, and I was reading through Proverbs that time because the Proverbs a day keeps the devil away, as I was always told. So I was reading through the Proverbs, and I was going through, and I remember coming to this verse, and it just struck me because of the timing of it, watching someone lose their temper and then seeing this, it helped me get the import. And so it's a, a Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. And I'm like, yeah, I want to be that guy. He says a guy who has self-control. Control over his temper. Control over his emotions. Control over who he is and what he says and what he does. He says he's stronger than someone who could take a city. And I'm like, that would have to be a pretty strong guy. You know, if one guy, you know, this juggernaut comes in and could take over a city... That'd be a guy who has some strength and some wisdom and some cleverness there to come in and be able to take a city in that day you know, with a sword, and that was it. And the Bible says, you have self-control. You're stronger than that guy because that's all day, every day, not a one-time experience. That is the ins and outs, that you are guarding your steps, that you are watching your mouth, that you are watching what people see about you, what they say about you, about how you say and what you do. And I took it to heart, and that really struck me. And this is the verse that I always think about when I think about controlling our temper and and watching what we are doing. And so uh, self-control, that inner strength, is true strength, the Bible says. Let's look at one more. It's in uh, Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29 and verse 22. says, An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. It says there, you know, it's just the angry guy who's just going around causing trouble, stirring up trouble, seems to like trouble. And this furious man abounds in transgression. There's sins. You know, sin's going to follow him. He is causing sin, causing people to sin, stirring up trouble. He's not living the peace-filled life. He's not a peaceable person, as Christ tells us to be the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. This guy's not doing that. He's just going around making someone lose their job. It's like, oh, that makes you feel good, knowing someone lost their job. That day. You know, going on and doing all those things. You know, there's people who deserve to lose their jobs. But you're just going around because you're on a tear to do that. He says, don't do that. Don't be the furious man. So he calls all these guys fools. He calls them sinners. Now, these angry people, these quick-tempered people, these people who have no self-control. He calls them weak and not strong. And so that's the normal person who has a temper, the normal person who loses uh, their temper and has an anger fit, furious in that way. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 7, he isn't talking about a furious quick-tempered guy he calls him the wise man Uh, verse 7 surely oppression maketh a wise man mad Um, he's talking about the wise person so this is when this guy gets mad and it's it's an extreme thing and he says one of the things that can make a wise man mad is oppression you know putting someone up against the wall pushing him repeatedly repeatedly making it hard on him for no reason at all matter of fact seeming like you go out of your way to make it hard on them he says you can make them snap he says, and so he says, as I've observed and I've watched, and I've seen that even a wise person, someone who lives by those principles we went through in, in the Proverbs, he says, even they can be pushed to the point where they snap if you keep oppressing them, if you keep holding them down, if you keep putting things on them, making life harder. I was trying to think of an example. I was trying to think, well, I lived a while, gone through some things. The only one I could really think of was when we were younger and I remember bouncing a check. Uh, 
you know, it's embarrassing, you know, I don't know, bounce a check or whatever, and you find out about it, and I, I can't remember if someone called me or whatever it was. I finally find out, and I go down to the bank, like, hey, I bounced a check, you know, here's, I knew it was tight, you know, like, oh, yes, uh, it looked like you wrote a check for $20, you had $17, so you're $3 shy. Well, okay, yeah, here's $50, can you put that in and cover it? And like, oh, no, you're going to need $150 just to be level. I'm like, what do you mean? It was a $20 check. Well, you know, we knew you wanted to, to uh, have that check paid, you know, so we kept applying it every two hours for three days, you know, and, and so there's a fee that's incurred. You owe $150 just to get zero. I'm like, you thought that would help me by putting me deeper in the hole every two hours you know, for so many days. I'm like, why didn't you notify me? Oh, we sent you a letter. You should get it tomorrow. Oh, by then, it'll be $200. You know, so by this time, you know, you're an irate person standing there. Like, can I have a man teller that I could punch? Because right now you're making me mad with your smile. And can I help you with anything else? You're not helping me at all. You know, can you take away these fees? This, this is just makes you irate. You know, by the fee on top fee and you know just the the slowness of the process. And we're like, ugh, ugh, ugh. can I help you with anything else, sir? It's like, ugh, it's just frustrating. You know, I'm sure I'm the only one that's ever had that happen. You know, but, but you know, just man, just makes you enraged. It just seems like all you're doing is feeding me to death and you're stealing my money and the interest on this, on that, and the other thing. It just uh, gets you deeper in debt. Just kind of that oppression, you know, can drive you to the point, you know, and no matter what it is, what it seems like thing upon thing comes on you. You can't get up and as soon as it seems like you're going to get up, someone knocks you back down and the water pump goes out and the water heater blows and all these, it just seems like, whoa, how are we ever going to survive this, you know? It seems like when you're young, you get way more of that, you know, <laughs> just kind of teaching those things as it's going. And then you kind of learn to deal with it. And Solomon's trying to give us those tools for how do you deal with it. Verse 9, he says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And so he is saying here, you're the wise man. Remember, I want you to be the wise man to be slow to anger. And even when you're being oppressed and, or you have something that is causing you to anger, remember, you know, he's like, be patient. Solomon warns us before you go too far, don't be a fool. You don't want to be a fool. You don't want to go too far in that. And so he says, you know, you want a good life, and when your button is pushed, you need to remember when that line is crossed, pray. Pray for resolution. Pray for some help. Pray for patience. Take a step back. Don't say anything rashly. And so he's even reminding us in the context of this. Remember you're wise. Remember the things that make you wise is that you're slow to anger, that you have self-control, and you're not going to let this circumstance boil you over. You're going to have to pray and work and, and seek and, and then find out how can you help yourself get out of this hole that you've dug. And so you need to resolve it. So verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. He says, because when you get done, and here I am at 52 and whatever the time we had the check and it rolled over all that. Apparently I survived it. I don't remember how it happened that we got enough money in there that they, after a grown man cries in the bank, they take some fees off or something. I don't know. Then you finally, finally work some things out and you have enough money in there. You're like, oh, you know, you think back, you're like, well, you know, I guess they gave me some character. <laughs> gave me a good illustration. Or you know, whatever, you try to think of the good things, the positive things that would happen through those things. And so it's, remember, the end is better. It's always better when you get through it. It's always better when the conflict's resolved or when the surgery's over and, you know, and, 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 and someone's healthy. All those things, you know, oh, just the, the, the end of it is, is better than the beginning. And he says, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And he says, and if you're patient, the reward's going to be sweeter than if you're angry and you throw a fit through the whole thing. He says, instead of looking back and saying, yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. I'm sorry I did that. Um, oh, boy, I wish I wouldn't have done that now. We're to be patient. We're, we're to be kind in that way. And so uh, the other day we were buying something, or I was buying something, and we were at a store, and 
Uh, I was trying to haggle on the price. I was just kind of having fun. I was expecting to pay the full price, but I was having fun. But apparently I embarrassed Levi by how many times I asked, sure, that's the amount. And so he and Beth went there the other day, and he sends me a picture. He goes, hey, look, they've got a tall guy in a Jeep policy now. The prices are fixed. Do not haggle on the prices. And I'm like, boy, I hope, hope they took it as a joke like I did. I didn't mean to embarrass anybody. I was just having fun. So, uh, yeah, that was just recent. Uh, but uh, you, know, but uh, you, don't, you don't want to be that guy. You know, uh, as Adam says, I don't want to be the guy that makes a chicken rule for Franklin, you know, because he had too many. So I don't be that guy that causes, the, causes that. You know, we want to make sure we do things cautiously and, and rightly. And so he says, here, you want a good life. You know, you need to, we need to remind ourselves when we get in that point where, where they have pushed us and the oppression is there and we're about to be mad to remember these elements. That I want to be kind. I want to be patient. I want to be the strong man who can take a city, that you want all those things. And so he reminds us that the end's going to be better. Remember your character. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and, and verse 11 <clears throat> says, uh, James 5, 11 says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Uh, I don't like enduring, but he says here, he goes, we count them happy, the ones who've endured and gone through some hard things. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and tender in mercy. So here, you know, James reminds us, we need to remember Job. Job went through some hard things. He didn't know why. He didn't know what all was going on. We knew because we have the book of Job and we know that spiritual battles were being fought down on earth and he was the example as things were being pushed. You know, and, and Job held true and, and he didn't curse the Lord and he didn't shake his fist and he didn't curse God and die as his wife told him and his friends told him all these different things. He says, remember him. Well, he was patient. And boy, we count him happy. And one example that we've all still lift up, the patience of Job and how God was pitiful to him and, and had tender mercy. He got back double of everything that he lost at the end of the story. He gets twice as many kids and his money and camels and all that stuff. God rewards him for his patience and for being the example that he knew he would be. And so uh, he says, be that. Be that in this time and place. Be that in your community. Be that in your family. Be the, be the Job. Be the patient one that people can look and say, how would they behave? And he wants you to be wise. He wants us that, to do that. Also in Ecclesiastes 7, that in verse 7, <clears throat> there's a second half. He says, Surely oppression maketh the wise man mad, and the gift destroyeth the heart. Now, first you're thinking, well, I don't know. I like gifts. <clears throat> but he's not really meaning the gift here. He's talking about bribe. A bribe to a wise man. Uh, bribery. Uh, he's also talking to the wise person here. So someone who has standards, who has um, business ethics, you know, and how they're going to move and what they're going to do. And so he says... Uh, you know, if he accepts a bribe, that compromises his principles. And that can set him down a slippery slope. The next thing you know, he is sinning easily and more easily and more easily. Because, you know, someone who's caught up in, you know, <clears throat> all kinds of uh, bank fraud and embezzling and all that stuff, it didn't start yesterday. You know, it started probably with the easy little thing that became easier and easier and easier. And next thing you know, they are in way in over their head because it got too easy. And he says, here, you know, you avoid that first step, is what he's telling the wise man. Don't, don't make that first compromise on, on, the, on the standards that you have. And so uh, we need to decide today how we're going to act and how we're going to move and, and what kind of business practices we're going to have. And you need to do that as a young person. You need to do that each and every day. Like, this is who we are. This is what we do. We don't do that. We don't cheat on our taxes. We don't compromise in this. I don't take payouts. I, I don't do those things. And so this bribe here you know, is, 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 is cash motivation to get something done, greasing their palms. I, I'd heard if you... 
Chicago is supposed to be notorious in that way. Like if you had a convention in Chicago, uh, they're supposed to then, the unions are supposed to move everything on the convention floor, and uh, we've had vendors that have come in and are like, you know, it costs, you know, $1,000 for the booth. It costs $2,000 to get the guy to actually do it, you know, to, 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 to grease the palms, to get him to actually take your stuff and put it in there. It's like, oh, now you've got to grease the electrician to run the cord over. You gotta grease, you know, they're just notorious for fleecing, you know, these companies that come in. It's like, why does anybody go to Chicago for a convention then? Come to Indiana. It might be just as bad. I don't know. But, you know, but it's a slippery slope. And Solomon is warning here, don't start that slide. Stay true. It, it, it might seem appealing, but the end is going to be way worse. It's going to take you further than you want. You know, we call it backsliding. You know, and next thing you know, you're like, how far am I? You're the prodigal in a far-off country eating out of a pig trough. You know, it started out, you know, just you leaving. He says, it's, it's a slippery slope that slides away. He says, don't be tempted. Uh, David talks about that in Psalm. Look at Psalm 73. He talks about he, he was tempted in this. Psalm 73. In verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such that are of a clean heart. So he's starting out praising God. He's like, I want to write a song about praising God. He's good to Israel. At this point in time, things are going great with Israel. As they sin and they continue to sin, we know that he has to judge them because he loves his children. And if he loves his children, he disciplines them. But here, you know, we're at the days of David. He's like, man, God is good. He's blessed us. Look what all we have. And he goes, man, he's good also to the one of a clean heart, the man with a clean conscience, the one who lives a life that Solomon's talking about, that wise life, that self-control and does what is right and is not bribed and all these things. And so he's, uh, verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He said, there was a point in time where he made a choice. And he's like, I almost took that path. I almost slid down that slippery slope. It was right there. And it was so close. He says, it almost it terrifies him to think how close he was. Uh, look at verse 5. He says, uh, they are not in trouble as other men. He's looking at them. He's like, man, these guys, it seems like they have it all. They're not in trouble like other men. They've got plenty of cash, you know, because they take this. Neither are they plagued like other men. It seems like they've got connections. They can get things done. You know, they're movers and shakers. Maybe I want part of that. Verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. That was a good thing in their day, you know, because, you know, they had plenty of food. You know, that was what they were after. Something to find out with fatness. They could... Um, um, they have more than their heart could wish. It seems like they had plenty. Boy, it seems like, man, yeah, he's cheating on taxes. He's got way more money. He lives better. He's got the nicer car. You know, he's skimming welfare. You know, he's driving the Lexus. And then he's got all these, boy, maybe I ought to go down that path. Verse 9, he says, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Verse 11, and they say, how doth God know? And is there any knowledge in the Most High? They're like, God doesn't see. God's not judged me. Seems like I'm getting by with it. Not, I've not been struck by lightning. Apparently, you know, it's okay with God. You know, he's not seen. He can't see. I've done it in the dark. Apparently, I've done it outside his notice. So let's just keep going. And they're trying to encourage David to do that. And he's like, it seems tempting. Wow, I can get ahead. I can get better. Maybe I should. It, it, it tempts him. And he was a hero. Verse 17, he says, he was tempted. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood therein. He says, oh, he had the habit of going to church, you know, going, and he heard the word of God, and the word of God reminded him why you don't do that, and why you don't go that way, and why you don't behave that way. He says, I remembered their end, that there is a judgment, and that God does see, and they are to be held accountable, and that you aren't getting by with it just because you haven't been judged right here and now, that judgment isn't over yet. You know, payday is not always on Friday. He said, payment is coming, verse 18. Surely thou, thou didst set them in a slippery place. Thou castest them down into destruction. 
He says, yeah, once they got it going, it's a slippery slope that slid them down to hell. And he says, oh, he goes, it terrifies him. Verse 19, how are they brought into the desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. He says, boy, it seemed like they had it all and they weren't getting caught. But then one day it all comes crashing down on them. And he's like, whoa, that could have been me. Verse 21, thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. That means he got sick at his stomach. He goes, I was sick at my stomach at how close I was to going in with those guys. From making those decisions and going down that path, it literally made him sick. Verse 22, so foolish was I and ignorant. I was, a, um, I was as a beast before these. Like, it was like I had no learning at all. It was like I took no instruction, like I had no wisdom. I almost went down because it seemed like an easy, beneficial path. I almost started down that way. And David was like, whoa, I dodged a bullet. Thank you, Lord. I'm glad I went into your house and heard correction and heard instruction and changed my path. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thank you for guiding me, even in that moment when I was weak, that whatever the circumstance was, you made me not make that choice. And, whoo, I thank you, Lord, for having me by my right hand, like my dad pulled me away from that that I've stared at too long. Thank you so much. Verse 24, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Oh, one day I get to be with you in glory. I don't face destruction like they do. I don't have to worry about hell because I've made those choices and I've chose to follow you and I've made you the Lord in my life and you are my Savior. I want to live a life that's pleasing unto you. I don't face destruction and embarrassment. I face being set you know, at a table you know, in front of my enemies. You know, he tells us in Psalm 23. So David's like, oh man, I had that choice too. He says it could start as easy with a bribe or just an easy thing. He's like, don't make your conscience calloused to where you don't feel the prick of sin anymore. We're to keep our conscience soft and tender, that we have a, um, the Holy Spirit equipping us with the law, telling us what is good and right, and telling us when we've gone wrong to keep us and to guide us down the path to do what we're supposed to do. And so uh, Solomon talks about that with the wise guy in Ecclesiastes 7. He says, so don't, don't be that guy. He says, I've seen it happen, and he's warning us against it. Uh, so Ecclesiastes 7, verse 7 says, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. Yep, and the gift destroyeth his heart. Yep, letting sin in can, can destroy you and take you down a bad path. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. That's true, we've seen that. Verse 9, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resisteth the bosom, or arresteth in the bosom of fools. True. And then chapter 10 is the cherry on top. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Solomon is encouraging here at the end. Well, the whole thing, if I was to, to capsulize verse 7 through 10, I'd say endure. Endure. Push through. Stay true. And endure. Stay true to him. Stay loyal to him. Take the confrontation. Be there. We can be like David. Entertain the thought for a minute. But, but, but run to him and, 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 and console ourselves with the law and, and what God says in the word and Proverbs and others to, to do right and to say that God's going to get me through this and I'll rejoice in the end and I'll be patient and I'll be kind and I'll be long-suffering and I'll hold my tongue you know, and, and, and I won't be wrathful. But he says here, do right. Fight to do right. Don't take the shortcuts. And so he's just encouraging all this to endure. Don't, and then he also says here in verse 10, don't opt out or wish away today. Some of us can be guilty of that. Just opting out. The old days are better is what he's saying here. Say thou not, verse 10, what is the cause of the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. The old days were better. You know, we think back and we reminisce. It was easier back in the olden days. 
You know, they seemed like they were more right. Things were more holy. Things were better back in the old days. Solomon says, if you do that, you aren't wise. Um, reminiscing's good. Good memories are good. It's good to sit around and talk about good times you've had and good family experiences. It's good to remember those. That's good. That's healthy uh, to do that. And, you know, it kind of increases your desire for heaven as family get together again. And I'm sure in heaven we'll talk about the good times we had on earth. That's fine. It's not romanticizing the past. They, or Solomon's saying, don't do that. And we tend to gloss over when we think back. To think it was easier. To think about the past was better. To think about the past being safer. I know I think about that. To think that the past was holier, that it just wasn't as wicked as it is. Now, I do think as we grow nearer and nearer the end times, wickedness does increase. The Bible tells us that. But to think that the past had none, we're fooling ourselves. And he says, you're not wise. Uh, men always sin. And it's always there. Just because we don't put it on the forefront and we don't advertise it as much when we think back, doesn't mean it wasn't there. Doesn't mean those struggles weren't there. Doesn't mean those temptations weren't there. Doesn't mean that people weren't embracing those very things. The things that we are doing, I mean, we have to think back and think, God destroyed the world once, right? With a flood because it was so wicked. And we're still here. And Billy Graham's famous quote, you know, if he doesn't destroy America soon, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah a policy. You know, like, we are flirting with disaster. Uh, That's what he's saying in that. You know, we need to change our wicked ways or destruction is surely upon us because God does not let it go on indefinitely. But to think that throughout history that no one sinned and nothing did wrong, that's, that's not true. It's a tempting thought, though. Sometimes it is tempting, and I've been very guilty of this, to think back and like, man, wish for simpler times. A common one around here, it seems, is, uh, at least in our day and age or my time frame, is to think back like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a little house in the prairie days? You know? All those shows and those books, you know, such good memories as you read them. Uh, the story episodes, I think, you know, Boy, that was just a busy life. You know, it just seemed like it was so simple. The family all together, you know, it was a a simpler time. You know, they didn't have to worry about power bills. No power. You know, they didn't have to worry about all those different things. They didn't have to worry about a water heater going bad. They didn't have water heaters and stove, you know. And so, you know, they just seemed like life was easier. Seemed like life was simple. Seems like family was tighter. Seems like people lived holier. They all went to church on Sunday. That's where they all met. It just seemed like it was a good and right and easier time. And boy, don't you just wish we could go back to an easier time when things would be easier and simpler, like Little House on the Prairie Days, we can all have a life like Laura Ingle Wilder, right, in that way. Now, Elaine and I called a show. We didn't catch them all, but we caught a couple that PBS did a few called uh, um, House. But they, would like, they had like uh, 1900 House. One we watched was called Frontier House. I don't know if anybody else ever saw those. But they would take people out of modern day, and they would put them back in the, in the Frontier House. They put them back in the 1880s. And you had to live with the technology that they had in the 1880s with the clothes that they had and with the communication and the materials provided. You had to live like it was 1880s. And they put these people, it was an experiment that they did. And then some people had different classes, different amount of money and means in which they were. Some people just had a tent. Some people had a cabin. Some people had a nicer place. And then they had to live. Now, they would let them live. I forget how long, a year, six months like that. And they would say, then they'd come in and judge and say whether they would have made it through the winter. You know, would you? Yeah. And, you know, that's not a game I like to play. Would I have died this year? You know, that's not, that's not so romantic, you know, to, to think about now because that was what they judged them by because pretty much here's what their day consisted of. The wife, she got up, started, you know, had to kill a chicken, 
get an egg, do something, pull something out of the garden, start splitting wood, you know, or have the kids split the wood, start getting the stove going, you know, get the fire all up just to be able to take the flour over to know to, to make some bread, to be able to put some jelly on it. If you had jelly, if you'd been, you know, but you had to make all the elements. It wasn't like loaf of bread, you know, meat out of the fridge. No, you had to cut it, kill it, cook it, and add all that just to have a meal. And as soon as you get done with that meal, you know what she was doing? Getting ready for the next meal. And going on that way. What was the guy doing? He's out tilling the garden, you know, turning the land, working on the house, building the house, fixing the house, splitting wood consisted of most of their day because uh, I can remember one house they got done they're measuring at the end how much cordage they're like nope you would have froze about January you'd have died and it's like that's not such a fun romantic time to think about now it's like oh, I kind of like being able to come home and sit down for a minute these guys didn't do that they came in and passed out got up with the chickens in the morning again because we got a lot of day a lot more wood to cut so you know we romanticized how easy it was we got pretty easy. There was no microwave. There was no nu- nuking it. There's no, let's just eat out tonight. You know, there was none of that. Eating out meant you edit in the field. You know? And so it was just, it was hard. You know, their skirts would catch on fire. You know, they, they had all kinds of difficulties. Their beard and cutting their hair and how they looked. And people in those experiments would sneak away to run to a restaurant and eat, you know, because they were hungry in this thing. And they'd get penalized for it. And so, man, it, yeah, we gloss over a little bit. You know, we like to think, you know, that we, we romanticize it. In 1937... Laura Ingalls Wilder gave a speech, and she said this, all I have told, uh, told us, or all I have told you is true, but is not the whole truth. There were stories I wanted to tell, but would not be responsible for putting in a book for children, even though I knew them as a child. She says, yeah, everything I told in those stories was true, but I didn't tell you the whole truth. I didn't tell you... You know, there's plenty of hard days. Paul, where are you? There's, that's most of that uh, TV episodes I remember. Paul's lost and she doesn't know. And Elaine's like, how'd they get by without a cell phone? You know, how'd they get by? And so it was, it, was, it was a hard life. But she goes, there's a lot of things I didn't tell you. So basically she's telling us, I romanticized. I, I kind of glossed over a lot of the things as I told these stories because they were geared, geared towards kids. Uh, Chris Rice is a musician that, that I like, Christian musician. You know, Other Side of the Radio is one of his songs. The cartoon song, you know, what if? Cartoons got saved, yabba dabba doo uh, If you remember that one, um, Smile, Me and Becky. You know, that's, that's one that our family has fond memory of. We listened to a lot of his music when they were growing up. But he had one song called Eighth Grade where he talked about how good it was in the eighth grade where he said the worst thing he had to worry about was dipping this week's corn dog and last week's ketchup. He goes, oh, you know, the problems weren't hard in eighth grade. You know, it, was like, it was like, that was easy. But the chorus, he comes around and he says, why does the past always seem safer? Because that's what we're thinking, right? Boy, if we could just think back. It seems safer back then. He says, maybe because at least we know we made it. I'm like, I think he's right. It's because we got through it. It's like Solomon says here, the end was better than the beginning because we can look back. We're like, oh, that was difficult paying that phone bill, whatever. But we made it. Oh, I wish we could go back to when the kids were little because we made it. You know, we went through these things. We, we survived it and we got done. And so there is a safety in that because as we think back, you know, we, we know we persevered. We know we got to the end. And so there is a tendency to romanticize it. Because you know, the future is uncertain. But once it's over and the anger is cooled and the bank account has enough money in it to cover the checks and the bills are paid and the conflicts are resolved, life goes on. You know? And if you think back and you kept your temper and you made it through those things, you can rest in that. And Solomon is saying, God didn't put you in the past. God put you here and now. Enjoy where you live, when you live now. Don't wish it away. That was one of the things, and I'm glad that it was a mantra that my wife kept in front of us all the time, kept it before our kids. 
Don't wish away the age that you are. Don't spend your 11 and 12-year-old years thinking that I can't wait till I can drive. It's like, no, enjoy being 11 and 12 because once you drive, you have more responsibilities. You have more things there. Enjoy where you are now. Enjoy your kids where they are now because as we were talking to Lucinda yesterday, she's like, gone in a second. You know, here he is graduate, gone in a second. Man, it seemed like yesterday. We can look at those pictures. We remember Brandon when he was little, like, oh, I remember him dancing crazy at a wedding. She goes, at the prom, I was told he danced twice or something like that. We were at a wedding once where he was like the center of the show. And he would be embarrassed if I told that, but he's not here today. So, but, <laughs> but, uh, but it's like, ah, you know, it's just like, man, it, it, it's, time goes fast. Time goes fast. So enjoy it, he's saying. Live here and now. Trust God in what you're doing. He's got you through those other things. He'll get you through this. If you stay true, if you stay loyal, if you stay faithful, your life will be better. Things will go better. You can live true unto him. He is trusting you to here and now. He's saying, pull your family through it. Enjoy it where you are. Don't wish it away. Don't, well, I can't wait till I'm retired. Oh, I can't wait until. Enjoy when you are, where you are, what you're going through as much as you can, knowing that God is moving and working in every bit of it. Acknowledge Him in it all. Don't just think, well, this doesn't count. All of it counts is what He's saying. All of it counts for Him. All of it is being watched. All of it is being observed. And are you being what He wants you to be? Are you living as He wants you to live? And He says a good place, or well, David said, a good place to be corrected is to be in God's house, right? He goes, oh, until I went to God's house, then I saw, I don't want to go down that path. I don't want to go that way. And that's why we come and reread His Word to course correct, to realign what it is we're thinking about. Laura Ingalls Wilder, uh, we think about those days, we think, man, it, this, this seemed good though. You know, even, even I'm sure she left some bad things out, but it couldn't have been that bad, could it? Uh, she lived next to the first recorded serial killer. Um, you know, we think about having it bad today. You're like, well, back then, at least they didn't have that. No, they had that. Um, they were called the Bloody Benders. Uh, they set up a house, a little uh, part store, not too far from their house. Then um, they lived in Kansas. Um, it was a mom and a dad and then another couple who posed as a brother and sister. They, some reports said maybe they were married, but they had this little general store set up. And the place was divided by a canvas top off of a wagon. And they would usually tell someone that was staying there to have the seat of honor. And they'd put them up against this uh, canvas wall. And then the dad or the brother would smash their brains in with a hammer. And they had a trap door that would drop them into the cellar. And then they found countless bodies buried in their garden when they were found. It's like just a few miles. Stores that they had been in. People who had narrowly escaped would then come together and tell us, well, I was there and they tried to get me against the stained curtain. I didn't want to sit there. I saw a dad with a hammer or I refused to go. And then these two angry brothers came out and I escaped barely inches away. But mass murderers, a little house on the prairie. Yeah, that doesn't sell in the children's book too good. You know? So she did glossed over that. And those fears were there. And when they found out about it and people ran, Paul said, comes in the house and says, they've called together the vigilantes. I didn't know Paul was a vigilante, but apparently that was how they did it back then. They couldn't call the police. They couldn't dial 911. You know, they couldn't you know, go over the internet and get someone there. And so the villagers, much like how the Bible had it, they didn't really have a, a formed police system in that way. That's why they had the um, kinsmen, redeemers in that way, and the blood, um, um, the ones that would go and they would uh, be able to kill if it was a blood sin in that way. And so she said Paul came in the house, grabbed his rifle, saddled the donkey or saddled the horse, and took off, didn't come back till late until the next evening. And she said, um, I just remember him saying, they'll never find him. And she goes, Year later, years later, I came to my own conclusion what he had done. And so, I don't know, but yeah. So, that, so that's uh, not so romanticized when you think about it. You know, they had some scary times and scary adventures, but not so innocent as we would like to think when we think backwards, you know, uh, to those times. And so live now. The past is romanticized. Remember that, it's glossed over. There was hard and horrible things that they went through. 
and live for the Lord, keep our temper, serve Him. As David said, we can be received in glory and be glad about it. And I think that's good advice that he's given us and a good life to live, how to live here under the, uh, under the sun so that we can stand with God in eternity and not be ashamed and that he, would, he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord.